Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the new season of the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew O'Connell. This year marks the seventh of the life of the podcast. This season, we'll be continuing to explore and deepen many of the themes we've picked up on in past episodes. We'll also be looking at new terrain and having conversations both old and new. Old and new, you say? Yes, old guests will be returning, new guests will be popping up, and there'll be the occasional think piece, which will make some of you happy and others switch off. But hey, that's wonderful. You get to choose. And that's a good thing, right? We'll be choosing to talk to the usual groups that we love to talk to, from philosophers to Buddhist academics. We'll be looking at the interplay between philosophy and Buddhism, the social and the individual, and trying to make sense of how it all might impact you as a practitioner and a thinking one at that. Of course, if you were not one of those, you'd probably be listening to some mindfulness podcasts somewhere designed to make you feel better about yourself and be a more passive worker at Amazon or wherever else you may find yourself. Excuse my cynicism. In the first few episodes that will be coming up over the next two months, we'll be looking at the intercultural, that is, the meeting point between East and West. We'll be looking further at the work of our favourite Frenchman, Mr. Francois Lowell. Yes, uh, again, don't run screaming. That's a good thing. Yes, it is. Even if you don't know it yet. I may even put out a think piece before Christmas, and we'll see what you make of that. We seem to be saturated in such interesting themes all at once that occasionally it's worth trying to at least speak to them in a slightly different way that might be useful to some of you, especially in such ideologically captured times. Politics is doing its thing. I know this is a Buddhist podcast, but of course, if you've been a regular visitor and a regular listener, you know that the political has its role in your life too and will affect your practice, especially when you're told by people on both sides of the political spectrum what to think and what to prioritize and who to be in your life. Well, you're always in resistance to that to some degree or you're a participant in it. And of course, the question we love to ask here is to what degree does that constitute a form of ideological capture? I'll be trying to get more European guests on as well, so it's not so Americocentric. Americentric, Americocentric. What's the right pronunciation of that word? Well, I'll look it up later. The podcast will aim to continue to bring intelligent critique and conversation We'll also be talking to Buddhist teachers who are doing interesting things and seeking really to think deeply and widely and creatively about what practice is and isn't and how we might deepen our sense of who we are as practitioners within the practicing life. As always, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's me. And I'm doing my American bit of trying to sell myself a little, which is quite challenging for Brits. We don't like that kind of thing, but here I am. If you want to know about my coaching practice, as many of you have, go and visit the website, imperfectbuddha.com coaching. Feedback and guest suggestions are always welcome, either at imperfectbuddha at outlook.com or through Twitter or on the Facebook page, which is severely neglected. I'm afraid if you love Facebook, uh, that's not likely going to change soon. For now, enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Today I'm speaking with Jin Park, who is Professor and Department Chair of Philosophy and Religion at the American University. Uh, She has also served as founding director of the Asian Studies Programme from 2013-2020, and she specialises in East Asian Buddhism, Buddhist and comparative ethics, intercultural philosophy, and modern East Asian philosophy. Wow, that's quite a selection of topics and interests 
many of which are of interest to us here on the podcast. So let's start off by talking a little bit about these two massive spheres of human culture and history that you are, well, surrounded by and that your professional life is concerned with. So how do you go about engaging these two massive topics as an academic? And if you don't mind, I'd also ask, how do you go about choosing what to study? Well, that's a great question. So I will have to bring the story of my life, it looks like. <laughs> but uh, okay, so um, I do intercultural philosophy. Right? So that is, uh, um, I do a little bit of compare, comparison between Asian tradition and, and Western tradition, especially contemporary or 20th century French philosophy. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, I grew up in Asian culture in South Korea, and then, but my education was modern education, which means that I studied a lot about Western philosophy. And in modern period, the entire world became Westernized. So my life itself is intercultural. And then I live in the United States, and here I lived longer than I lived in Korea, where I grew up. So... Um, to me, it was uh, quite natural to do this intercultural philosophy. When I studied Western philosophy in Korea as a, um, as a college student, I constantly uh, thought about the kind of claims made by Western philosophers. And in many cases, I wondered whether this really makes sense. And when I came to the United States to continue my study, I, uh, well, I studied uh, Buddhism and then um, 20th century French philosophy, and then there are similarities and differences, and these kind of uh, intercultural issues really uh, inspired me to think further about, uh, on the one hand, uh, limitations of a thought tradition, and at the same time, it's a contribution to different thought traditions. So it's both. My life itself is intercultural. And from there, emerges my intercultural kind of a scholarship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. And that's an interesting juxtaposition between not just East Asian philosophy and traditions, but specifically French or continental contemporary or modern philosophy. So obviously, if we're talking about 20th century French philosophy, there's there's so much that you can choose from. So in your earlier days studying uh, these thinkers, where did you start off or, or what did you find most interesting? And how is that looking today? Has you, have your interests in those thinkers changed much over time? And are you interested in the, let's say, the contemporary landscape of French philosophy as it is today? Oh, well, so when I studied philosophy in Korea, I studied a lot of... Um, traditional, quote-unquote, traditional uh, continental philosophy. And at the time, we didn't uh, have uh, topics like postmodernism or deconstruction. And then I was not really uh, the happy with modern philosophy, for example, because I couldn't make sense of it. I, it didn't seem to me that the claims they are ma making or modern thinkers, right, really uh, became part of my life. So um, at a certain point, I thought that, well, this is not uh, my, my cup of tea. I, I'm not interested. I'm not qualified or I have a talent to do philosophy. But it was after I began to study uh, postmodernism deconstruction, which happened in the United States. The first semester I studied at uh, NYU, uh, New York University, I took a course which is titled, I believe, uh, Postmodernism and Deconstruction. There I read all these postmodern thinkers, Jean-Francois Jean Lyotard or Michel Foucault or the deconstruction of Jacques Derrida and Julia Kristeva. And I was fascinated by these thinkers. And when we, uh, in the class, when we read Jacques Derrida's first book of grammatology, my classmates were kind of screaming, saying, that, what is this? This does not make sense. This is crazy, right? I mean, as you know, that Derrida is notorious for the, Derrida's works are notorious for its difficulty. But when I read Derrida, I thought that, wow, this is Buddhism, right? Here, here you see clearly Buddhist ideas, which in some way appears in, as a French philosophy. So that was really fascinating. So since the very first time that I encountered Derrida through Derrida's of grammatology, my uh, passion and fascination with Derrida's work continues. And um, even today, I, I really um, 
the enjoy working on Derrida and Buddhism, and I teach uh, courses on Derrida and Buddhism. I incorporate a lot of uh, materials from Derrida and, and Buddhism uh, in my research. And what was interesting to me was that, well, Derrida passed away 2004, but before I knew Derrida's work before that, right? So I was able to kind of follow up the kind of evolution of his uh, philosophy from earlier years of gratology to social, political dimensions and religious dimension, all these different dimensions of Derrida's works. And I, I find still a lot of topics that appear in Derrida's works very much relevant to my Buddhist scholarship and the topics that I am even currently working on. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps we could uh, just spend a few moments on that then. So what are you what are you currently working on? What what strands of Derrida's thought are you you pulling on currently, and how are you applying it to your particular academic interests? Mm-hmm. So um, before nineteen early nineteen nineties, Derrida's works were understood as just a kind of a textual analysis, and many people thought that there is no ethics, there is no politics, there is no social philosophy in, in Derrida's deconstruction. But I thought that from the very beginning, the first book of grammatology, I read Derrida's work as a social criticism, right? And it's uh, totally based on the issue of exclusion and inclusion, marginalization and marginality. And Derrida does talk about, at the very beginning of Abgrantology, logocentrism, neurocentrism, and phallocentrism. How can they not be social political philosophy, right? So those are the topics that I'm still working on. In other words, the question of exclusion is really a big one for me, as an Asian woman grew up in a Confucian society, patriarchal society, an Asian woman teaching Asian philosophy in the United States in the West, so uh, Asian in the West-centered world and doing Asian philosophy in the world, Western philosophy is the norm uh, from middle class in a capitalist system. And in many cases, I, I've been in a situation of being excluded from the center. And I think that Derrida's works really focus on this issue of exclusion and how exclusion happened, what are the impacts of this exclusion, not only on the personal group being excluded, but more generally in the society where they live and so on and so forth. So um, I focus a lot of his later works on uh, force of law or specters of Marx and especially later work on uh, Beast and the Sovereign, and then uh, these works really gave me idea about how to deal with this exclusion, the issue of marginality, and especially also the topic I'm very much interested in and working on nowadays, nonviolence and violence. Well, that's all, all fascinating. I'd like to stay with this term exclusion just for a moment, because obviously we use categories in order to make sense of very complex phenomena. And it gives us a way of at least starting off. You started out by saying that you've actually spent more time now living in America than you have um, in South Korea. So to what degree do you still experience this, this idea of exclusion personally? Do you feel excluded also perhaps from your original cultural roots? Um, how do you experience that? And how do you use Derrida's thought on this topic in order to process your own experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the sense of exclusion in the United States, that's an interesting question. So when I was in Korea, I grew up as a, a, a woman, right? A Korean woman in a patriarchal Korean society. So there I was just a woman versus man. There's a one layer of exclusion. When I came to U.S., I became an Asian woman. So Asian versus uh, uh, white or Western People, right? So here I see that double marginality, double minority position. So um, in a way that uh, the idea of diversity and inclusion has been a mantra, almost a mantra in U.S. academia and American society. But how actually this idea of diversity and inclusion happen and how we actually execute this idea is still an issue, right? And then um, I still do feel in this country 
uh, as an Asian woman, consciously, unconsciously, or intentionally, unintentionally, or implicit bias is still happening, right? So racism is still part of American society. And even in higher education at the university level, that the women are kind of treated less equitably than male colleagues is, is not a secret. All kind of survey and research shows that female uh, faculty members paid less and they were less equitably treated. And um, this kind of issue is constantly uh, part of my existence. So uh, this uh, awareness of exclusion in my own community or in human society simply based on one's race or ethnicity or gender is a kind of almost existential reality one needs to deal with. And then from the very beginning of, of grammatology, Derrida really talk about this uh, exclusion, how exclusion happens, right? And his idea of difference or trace uh, are the ideas to challenge these ideas that there is, there is no origin or any substance which justify this kind of exclusions. So I use Derrida's idea of difference or uh, trace and deconstructive operation to uh, analyze this uh, reality of exclusion. And I also make a connection with Buddhist idea of dependent co-rising or emptiness to kind of uh, draw from both the Western and Eastern traditions. Let's just think about it this way for a moment. If you were to apply then either dependent origination or Derrida's notion of deconstruction, if you were to take those as two separate practices. Considering what you've just said about yourself and you know these, these multiple identities, exclusion and inclusion, where would you end up? Yeah? So let's say I take um, what you've said as fundamentally a political project, or I take it fundamentally as a project of considering about your subjective sense of self, right? how you experience yourself existentially in the world. What changes in the direction you end up in if you take Derrida as your means for thinking alongside that complexity of forces, or if you go with the dependent arising? I think this leads us to a question of what philosophy does hmm. in our life and in our society. And my basic position about philosophy and in my practice of philosophy is that philosophy shouldn't be really stay in a very um, within a closed circle using all this uh, very complex technical vocabulary. I always think that philosophy should open it up, open itself to to everybody, general public, and make connection with reality outside. And that's, that's where my scholarship eventually evolved into, and that's where I am as a scholar now. In other words, the Derrida's idea of exclusion and discrimination and his challenge to this kind of 2,000-year-old Western philosophy, history of Western philosophy, really gives us the idea of how to really start make changes. And making changes is an interesting idea because when you think about change or transformation, we really want it to, want it to happen overnight, right? Change, it, it just happened like, like revolution. But any, for any kind of revolution to take place, there, ha there was long, long period of inception and evolution, right? Nothing happens overnight and I need to teach or tell my students repeatedly, nothing takes, uh, nothing happens overnight, uh, changes occurs little bit, step by step. And I think that's part of what philosophy does in uh, bringing attention to this kind of social injustice, both the social level, but at the same time, individuals level, and help people understand how this seemingly very abstract discourse that people encounter in philosophy is actually what is exactly happening in our daily life, what we exactly experience. Sometimes uh, 
we are not aware of that connection. But if we just are trying to think about the connection, then the connections are there. But at the same time, philosophers and academics needed to make efforts to bring these connections so that our work, philosophers' work, can can help uh, the the and or make contribution to the change that will happen in our society. Then, and I think that uh, the interesting part of doing uh, cross-cultural or intercultural uh, philosophy is this that. With the same worldview, like Buddhism and deconstruction, the emphasis has been different. For example, Derrida's idea of difference and uh, trace, even though it's very similar to Buddhist idea of dependent origination and emptiness, Derrida's focus was always on uh, sociopolitical dimension. He rarely talked about practice, right? Western philosophy rarely talk about practice. On the other hand, Buddhism, with a similar worldview, the focus has always been individual transformation through practice. So if you put these two ideas together, you get some kind of, some kind of a complementary, uh, the position of each, right? So when you talk about equality or injustice, in Western philosophy, these, uh, these ideas belong to social political philosophy. Whereas Buddhism talk about equality, radical equality and injustice, but Buddhism rarely, almost never developed the social political philosophy because they always treat this at the individual level. In other words, they want you to change this through the transformation of an individual. And we need both. That's my claim, right? We needed this social political philosophy, but social political philosophy cannot actually have an impact on the society uh, significantly unless individuals change themselves, right? Change should happen from the very bottom of individual's mind, the way they look at themselves, the way they look at other people, the way they look at the social institution, right? So here is a very much a compl complementary position of Derrida's, uh, Buddhist, Derrida's deconstruction and the Buddhism in the way I draw materials from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's clear. That's clear. I think there's still a, a, a piece, uh, an unanswered piece of the, the question I posed before. You know, I think cross-cultural study of all kind, whether it's intercultural relationships between different schools of thought within philosophy or in other fields, um, are fascinating. But I think there's always inevitably a kind of tension between those points. And obviously, uh, whether you're an academic or just somebody who enjoys thinking about such topics, you have to choose, right? You have to choose who you're going to think about, the degree to which you're going to think about them, and what the consequences are of taking either some or large parts of their, their, their philosophy seriously and attempting to apply it. So I think the tension sometimes is also a point of interest, right? Um, so we might want to look for similarities between very disparate thinkers across time, and it's fascinating to do that. But at the same time, it's also good to think, again, well, okay, how are they similar? How are they different? How do those, the sort of meeting point between them produce both things I would wish to see or look for, but perhaps produce unforeseen outcomes as well. And I'm also always interested in the impact that has on the individual thinking about such matters. So I don't know if you're comfortable answering a slightly more personal take on that. Obviously, it's entirely up to you. But I just wonder to what degree, you know, the conclusions you draw from, from this meeting point differ if you head off more down the road, like I said, of Derrida and therefore a more political social interpretation of the significance of his thought and bringing it in line with Buddhist thoughts such as emptiness or dependent origination, or whether, um, as you were talking about, you lean it more towards the work on the individual, because I mean, there's no, there's no perfect accomplishment of either, right? So from that perspective, how do you manage that tension? Let, let, let me be clear in my question. How do you manage the tension between the individual as a person who in some sense must work on themselves, change themselves, engage in some kind of practice so that they become um, more awake to their human condition, and then the more political and social practice of becoming more awake and aware to the wider world and the, the implications of 
of social practices, whether they be political or economic or religious for that matter. How do you manage that tension and how does that tension play out in how you think about figures, you know, like Derrida? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. And I think, first of all, as you said, that since I deal with the two big, two big traditions, there are things that I can do and there are things I cannot do. And I think that is uh, true to almost any uh, scholars or any thinkers, right? Mm -hmm. So there are all various different aspects in Buddhist studies and Buddhist philosophy. I do certain type of uh, Buddhist philosophy, right? And then there are a lot of different kind of ways to approach Derrida's uh, philosophy. And I kind of choose some topics from Derrida's philosophy. So um, we cannot do everything all the time. Uh, on the other hand, the kind of tension that you just mentioned about individual versus social, political, right? So in a way, that tension sounds like a private versus public uh, dualism or polarization. And I would say that even though on surface, they might sound like uh, two different dimensions. Uh, in Asian philosophical tradition, usually the idea of uh, the separation between private and public does not exist. And that has been the case uh, in Confucianism throughout its history. And that has been the case in uh, in Buddhism as well. In other words, the idea is that if an individual is not good in his uh, uh, or in their private realm, the person cannot be a great uh, person in a public realm. And that, that is very clear, whereas Western tradition has maintained that there is a separation between private and public, right? And my position on this issue is that even though there are kind of different dimensions in each, I do think that we need to see both rather together than in polarization, right? So individual's cultivation obviously requires a lot of effort. And for example, Chan Buddhism is all about that. Chan practitioners perhaps spend uh, entire life or several lives to practice themselves. But even in the tradition, the, in theory, the idea is that one cultivate oneself so that one can become a really uh, good person in a, in a community, right? So what is called uh, 10 oxo herding pictures of Jan Buddhism uh, shows 10 diagrams, right, 10 kind of drawings about the process of Chan practice. And the final stage of enlightenment is not at uh, stage 10, that's a stage 8. And what happens after that? The practitioner come back to the uh, marketplace and become a the, the helping other people. So in other words, even Buddhist tradition, which really emphasize individual's cultivation, the private, the individual subjectivity is not totally separate from social political dimensions. Right? And then in the Western tradition, there is no kind of a, the, what is called the, the self-cultivation and then trying to put this self-cultivation in the dimension of, of religion. But I constantly ask, if you do not practice philosophy, what, what does philosophy do? It, the practice of philosophy might look different a little bit from other practice, for example, religious practice, but it is a practice. For example, I ask myself, there are reasons why I'm a Derridian, not a Kantian, right? Which means that in some way, I'm practicing Derridian deconstruction rather than Kantian philosophy in my life. That is what I call philosophy. I mean, practice. And then this practice have an influence on my uh, meaning production, the value kind of judgment and decision making. So I don't think that uh, the, what we see as tension between uh, private and public or subjectivity and uh, social political world might not be so distinctively separate worlds. Okay, let's go for one more uh, question about Derrida. How has your study of Derrida actually changed the way you think about Buddhism and your understanding of it? Well, that's interesting. Yes, um, 
Derrida said, my study of Derrida gives me uh, more languages so that I can explain Buddhism more relevant to the current world and to the realm of social political dimension. So in other words, as I said before, that, that traditionally Buddhism has emphasized individual's cultivation. And in Asia, still that kind of dominates Buddhist scholarship. So if I try to apply the uh, Buddhist idea to uh, the social political dimensions, uh, that sounds like a little bit what they call applied Buddhism. But recently, and uh, what is called engaged Buddhism did emerge in first in American society and then Asian society like Korean society, they also began to work on engaged Buddhism or what is called practical Buddhism. That is the idea of uh, applying traditional Buddhist thoughts to social political dimensions or social issues. And when I began to read Derrida, first read Derrida and continue to work on Derrida, I feel that I am more equipped with languages which are more relevant to contemporary society than Buddhism, Buddhist language, uh, because especially when you work in Western language, English, like myself, because Buddhism is a tradition from the West, from the East, and some of its vocabularies are so unfamiliar to many people in the West. Uh, just to trying to get familiar, familiar with those languages might take a long time and give people some kind of unfamiliarity. Whereas uh, when I kind of draw languages and ideas from Derrida, I was able to uh, present Buddhism and discuss Buddhism more in, a, in, connect, in the context of a contemporary society and more in the social political dimensions. And sometimes it kind of gives a more or uh, gives a idea that might be more understandable to my colleagues who work in Western philosophy. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, another thinker you have drawn on quite a bit in your work is Meloponti, another Frenchman, very interesting thinker also, um, often underrated. Uh, and you wrote a book about Meloponti and Buddhism. Obviously, that's deeply connected to the phenomenological tradition. He's famous, perhaps, to most of our listeners for his work on perception and the body. Um, what did you take from his work in, in bringing him together with Buddhism? This is a public service announcement. The next six minutes of this podcast interview, the quality of the sound will drop significantly. Please be patient. Service will be back to normal and running well straight afterwards. So the Merleau-Ponty Buddhism that, uh, that is a co-edited volume, I edited it with my colleague, uh, Agarian Koff, who's a scholar of West, the Japanese Buddhism and also who does uh, uh, cross-cultural philosophy. And I was, when I first read uh, Meryl Pongti, I was uh, really attracted by his later work. So people usually kind of tell there are some differences between his early work, uh, Phenomenology of Perception, compared to later work, the last one, the, the Visible and Invisible. And it was really the Visible and Invisible, which really really uh, attractive to me. Um, invisible and invisible, uh, Merleau-Ponty really kind of challenges the traditional idea of subject-objective dualism in the West. And he kind of shows this idea of intertwinedness of subject and object, right? And then which he develops into an idea of chiasm. Chi, as you know, is Greek uh, expression for X, English X, so crisscross idea of subject and object. And uh, so he says, for example, um, <clears throat> when I when I see the table, it's not that I just see the table. And this is a very much modernist idea that I, the subject, has a kind of a capacity to understand the object out there. So here is a clear subject-object dualism. Uh, and then in this kind of subject-object dualism, obviously there is a hierarchical relationship between the two. And Merleau-Ponty says that when you look at a table, for example, an object, it's not that you just look at the look at the object and create the object or understand the object. The object looks 
at you. And in this kind of center, crisscross, chiasmic relationship at the center, I go to the object, object comes to me, the visibility occurs. My understanding of that object uh, occurs. And I think this is a fascinating idea. And this is very much uh, related to what Buddhism explains through the dependent horizon or one of the Buddhist school called Yogacara Buddhism, which he develops very sophisticated idea about this idea uh, of uh, interaction between human kind of sense faculty and then external world, right? So, um, this is uh, the very idea of how we have a relationship with others, right? Or even ourselves. Um, when we, if we see others as just an object who is not related to me and separate from myself and who, whom I can just understand depending on my knowledge, then the object is totally a victim of my kind of uh, mind. I cannot know the object 100%, right? But then I, I, I assume that I know the object. Whereas uh, if we understand the object uh, as Merlin proposed to do, as a kind of encounter between the subject and object at the center, then, then I know that my understanding is the subject is only halfway there, right? And then in some way, I try to understand the object and we are in an equal footing, right? But we are so much accustomed to the idea of dualism of the subject and object and the idea that the human beings are what is called the conscious or the function of the mind is what enable us to understand things. This idea like the object looks at me is a little bit strange, might strange. So once I taught this idea in my uh, intercultural philosophy course and after the class, one student approached me and she said, well, but the table does not look at me, right? Obviously, the confusion is there. How can table and an inanimate uh, being can look at me? But um, we need a we need a creative uh, approach to anything, right? So we have to think about that. And then this type of idea of Merleau-Ponty was totally different from any other Western thinkers that I read, and then. And his criticism of the problem of dualism or even Hegelian dialectics, which is, was supposed to overcome the uh, subject-object dualism. But as uh, Meryl Ponte said, and I totally, I totally agree with him, that uh, Hegel's uh, dualism or dialectics ends at the final point, right? So it doesn't move on to next stage of dialectics, then it is not dialectics. And his idea about the philosophy was also very uh, refreshing to me. And he said that uh, it's not that there is a specific topic for philosophy. Any topic can be a philosophy if you take it philosophically, right? So the question like, what time is it? can be just a simple question to ask the time. But on the other hand, if you really think about what time is it, right? Even this simple question is philosophical. Because when I ask you, what time is it? There's a certain kind of disturbance inside of me to ask the time. I might be got bored. I might be excited to think about something that will happen later or something like that, right? So this simple question can be just a simple question, what time is it? Or it can be very philosophical kind of topic. So I think this type of approach to philosophy, it was fascinating to me. And then I think that it really had a, a lot of influence on my uh, path of philosophizing since I first came. Okay, uh, interesting, uh, Jin. Yama, I find uh, Melu-Ponty fascinating as well. And what, did a, what an original and creative thinker. And, and to do the kind of thought that he engaged in you know, as part of the Western tradition, in a sense, he kind of broke out of it to some degree, I think, and he opened certain doors that perhaps many have been kind of left to the side. I'd like to see more people exploring this relationship between subject and object and transcending duality, so to speak, but also having a bit more pre appreciation for the body within philosophy, which is so often negated. But uh, um, one of the core interests of yours in your academic work is non-Western philosophy. And I have this question. I wonder to what degree a contemporary non-Western philosophy exists. So I totally understand your question because I, I always say that when people teach Western philosophy, 
we teach from Aristotle, Plato, Aristotle, and all the way down to 20th century and 21st century, even, right? And then not only we teach like a 20th century European philosophy, we teach individual thinker, right? Derrida, Heidegger, right? When we teach in non-Western philosophy in the West, in, in the uh, in the West, usually people start from fifth century before Common Era, right? the Buddha or Confucius, and usually they end somewhere like a second century, or if you move to 12th, 13th century, you are lucky. People rarely teach modern, right, period. What happened in uh, uh, modern Asian philosophy? And obviously this uh, issue is very much a political issue in the sense that the name or the expression or genre philosophy itself is a Western division, Western invention, right? By invention, I mean that the the idea of philosophy in the way that it was practiced in, in the West is different from Buddhism or Confucianism, right? So in a way, Buddhism, Confucianism are both philosophy and religion in the Western uh, tra tradition. But at the same time, in modern period, Western culture kind of rushed into Asia and people began to study Western philosophy and for the time being, the traditional Asian thoughts were totally ignored. I, I rarely ta taught uh, the Asian philosophy when I was in Korea. I studied only Western philosophy, right? My study of Buddhism was totally done as self-study when I was in Korea. Now, there are obviously uh, modern Western, modern Asian thinkers. So, for example, that's why I, I I I work on modern Korean philosophers, modern Japanese philosophers, and then, but there are not many people who are working on them. And uh, and one of the major problem is uh, really the translation issue. In order for these uh, uh, modern Asian thinkers to be known to the Western world, their works need to be translated. And that's really a huge job, right? So um, among the uh, non-Western Asian, modern Asian thinkers, the most well-known in the West perhaps uh, are modern Japanese thinkers known as Gyoto school thinkers. Mm -hmm. uh, they are called Gyoto school thinkers because they taught, they, uh, uh, they taught at uh, University of Kyoto, right? So starting from Nishida Gitaro and Tanabe Hajime and so on. So they developed a pretty interesting uh, intercultural philosophy. They were actually educated in Western philosophy, but obviously being Japanese, uh, they knew a lot about Japanese tradition, Japanese uh, uh, the Buddhism. So their philosophy turned out to be a very interesting intercultural endeavor. I don't know whether they thought when they did it in, at the beginning of 20th century that they are doing East-West comparative philosophy, but they were a supreme examples of uh, this intercultural philosophy. In Korean tradition as well, uh, there are um, modern Korean thinkers and um, so one of the thinkers modern Korean thinkers whom I'm very much interested in is named Park Chiu. And he was very much a social political thinker and who also challenged uh, what he called academic philosophy. And in a very short essay titled uh, Walking Away from Academic Philosophy, he said this. Well, he became a philosophy major because he wanted to know what philosophy is about. And all he learned for four years of his education was what philosophy was about. Right? So he said that therefore he wasted his four years and he wasted public money because he studied with public scholarship. And he said that philosophy should be always about right now, right here, right? And he said right now, right here for us, what should philosophy be? So his philosophy is a philosophy of action or philosophy of praxis. And I, uh, I uh, contributed a short piece on him in a, in, in a forthcoming book. God, what is the title? It is a, it is a book uh, that, uh, um, that 
kind of collect all this kind of world philosophy, small short pieces from each world philosophy, right? Textbook style. So um, I think this idea of a philosophy for uh, philosophy of action and philosophy for right here, right now, is a very interesting idea. And he kind of uh, explained this idea right right here, right now, and philosophy of engage, and the. Uh, in uh, by giving an example of two different attitude that one takes when one encounters ob an ob object uh, roughly in translation one is uh, called a uh, positional relationship and the other is called relational relationship that's my translation it's a it's a not a best translation but for now what it means is that uh, when one encounters external object one can just uh, take a distance and just a uh, position oneself, right? So for example, if you look at a very shabby house, you can simply say that, oh, here is a rundown structure, period. And you are just taking your position as a subject and uh, no relationship with the object, right? But if you take a relational uh, relationship with the object, once when you see a shabby house, you would think that, oh, here is a rundown a structure. And then you should be able to think that, oh, there must be people living in it. Their life must be terrible. They must be live in poverty, right? So you feel the people who live in that structure. And you should move one step further and think that, what kind of society is this to let its members live in this kind of condition, right? And then you can even move further, think that, what should we do to make changes to this situation? And I think this is a, a very good example of what philosophy should be when it gets connection with the reality of the time. Right? And this is what he calls what he calls philosophy of action. So yes, there are there are various non-Western modern philosophers, but uh, there are various kind of barriers to bring them to the Western context and to the Western philosophical discourse, but. Uh, the things are happening just little by little, right? Mm, Translations mm. and a short piece like the one that I contributed. And then there is another project, uh, not what I'm doing, but I contributed to about what is called world philosophy. So intercultural philosophy, world philosophy, these type of textbook style kind of uh, collection or anthologies are emerging. They will come out some within a couple of years and then uh, make a non-Western philosophy more visible. Not only the traditional philosophies like Buddhism and Confucianism, but really 20th century philosophies as well. That sounds great. Really interesting. Can you um, repeat the name of the, the person? Was it Vatu? Pak. Pak is the last name, like myself. Yeah. And I, I did a, a Asian style in which family name comes first, right? So Pak Okay, okay. Pak is the last name, and Chi Wu. Okay, yeah, really interesting. And those are two ways of thinking about philosophy that I find particularly fascinating. So, Now, um, I'd like to move on to talking about another thinker who you've done quite a bit of work on recently. And I'll probably mess up the name, but I'll rely on Eugene to, to correct me. Kim Iriop. Kim Iriop. Yeah, pretty good. There we go. Okay, great. This is someone you've, you've written a, a few pieces about, and it's obviously connected to your particular interest in research on women. And this is a thinker, again, who I'm sure many of the listeners today will not have heard of. And she passed away recently as well, uh, I mean, recently in terms of history, of course, in 1971, and she had quite the life. So let's talk about her next. Could you give us a bit of an overview of who she was and why you felt that it was important to research her and write about her. Sure, yeah. As I as you mentioned, that I did quite a research on her, and then I published a translation of her book, and then I also published a monograph which covers the entire life of Kimidiop. So Kimidiop was born in 1896 in Korea, northern part of Korea, uh, contemporary North Korea, and then she passed away in 1971. So she, her father was uh, the first generation of Korean Protestant uh, pastor. So she grew up as a very faithful Christian. 
And she even imagined her future when she was just seven or eight years old as a missionary. So then she could go Africa and spread God's words. And then, unlike uh, Korean girls or women at the time or traditionally uh, who were not subject to education because uh, Confucian patriarchal society didn't think that women need education. Um, she was educated uh, elementary school and middle school, high school, and all the way up to the newly introduced uh, college education for women. Right? So uh, Idia uh, attribute this idea of her getting education to her parents, a Christian thought, modern thought. So she was a really unique woman in Korean tradition who got all the education. And then uh, in 1920, when she was in her 20s, she was at the forefront of women's movement in Korea, uh, fully educated with this kind of modernist ideas of the Western world. Right? So. Uh, she was then the so first-generation Korean feminist. But then she began to practice Buddhism starting around 1928, so in her early 30s. And eventually she joined a monastery in 1937. And she had a great influence on many women, both monastics and lay people. And she stayed as a son master or gen master until her death in 1971. So she was a Christian but then she she gave up Christianity during her teenage years. The reason being that um, she had doubts about Christian doctrines, and those were doubts I believe that any Christian could have, such as if God created the world, why there are so many bad things in the world? If uh, um, if you are in heaven and your family members are in the hell, can you still be happy in heaven? And so on and so forth, right? Uh, when she had this kind of question and tried to ask her father, whom she described as the most faithful Christian in entire Korea, her father being a very conservative uh, evangelist Christian, kind of stopped her and he told her that you have such a questions because your faith is not strong enough. You don't ask questions about God, pray. That's the only answer. And obviously, this type of response backfired, and the community lost faith in Christianity. Um, so she turned to Buddhism, and then she didn't talk about Christianity until her 60s later in her life, when she looked back at Christianity and reinterpreted Christianity from Buddhist perspective. So she was a, a member of what is called a new woman. New woman, meaning that uh, the generation of women who received the newly introduced Western education and who were sensitive to the gender equality. And uh, she was also a writer. She published short stories and polemics about women's issue and social issues. And then she was a, a feminist. She was a Buddhist nun. And that's her story. Wow. Yeah, she did a lot. What an in, uh, incredible woman. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, she she had her roots within evangelical Christianity, and within this patriarchal society. Later on in her life, you said she looked back on Christianity and interpreted it within the Buddhist framework. What creative interpretation did she bring to Buddhist philosophy, whether that was just in within um, Korean society or at a larger level? So, um. Her interpretation of Buddhism is really cre creative, and then the kind of expressions she used there, I I don't see any other um, Buddhist thinkers in Korea. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that has to do with her Christian background and her background as a writer and a women's movement activist, right? All these ideas get together, and then. Um, she uses the Buddhist idea of no self which means that uh, one does not have a permanent, fixed, uh, independent essence as the self, but the self is possible because of the contribution of all these different things. And this, this self is open instead of closed. She used this uh, traditional Buddhist idea of the self um, to reinterpret 
the idea of women's self. So women's self in a patriarchal society is a gendered self, right? Women is a woman. That's it, right? And so we, we, you cannot go beyond that uh, that domain. The idea identity is closed. It's a circle, closed circle. Whereas when you apply this Buddhist idea, then you begin to open this circle and you become bigger than this circle, the small identity. So she uses this expression, great self and the small self, right? The small self is the, the kind of gendered identity or the identity of our daily self who constantly trying to close out and then create a closed self uh, as opposed to others, right? Subject, object, dualism here. Whereas uh, great self is the self who realized that one's existence is possible because of all these different con contributions, which is not oneself. And because you accept uh, and all these different things as part of you, you become bigger and bigger. And openness of self is uh, the identity of the self. And this idea of great self really becomes her way of answering her search for uh, freedom as uh, as a, a woman in a patriarchal society in Korea. So as a feminist activist, she was searching for this identity, right? Open open identity beyond gendered identity by changing society. And she seems to realize that by changing the society is not sufficient, right? We need to go beyond that change. And then she really got to this religious philosophical worldview. That's another idea, great self and small self uh, that are unique to Gimidiop in her interpretation of Buddhism. Another creative uh, interpretation is her use of creativity. She defines the Buddhist practice as an exercise of creativity. And he, she says that uh, when this creativity becomes uh, consolidated and uh, appear as uh, something tangible reality, that is called culture. Right? And so she says that uh, the Buddha is a great person of culture. And she joined the monastery in order to be a disciple of this great person of culture. And this is very interesting way of defining Buddhist practice, right? And I, I think this idea of practice as a creative activity is very important because think about this. We usually use this expression creativity when we refer to artists who are free souls, spirits, right? So. Creativity is a human a human exercise that is possible only we are free. Right? You cannot be creative if you are really confined within something. If you confine somebody as just a, in, in a gender, telling the person that you are a woman, so you should behave a certain way, creativity cannot find a room to exercise, to be exercised. And so in a way, her Buddhism and her practice of Buddhism is a kind of her way of going beyond gendered identity given by her society. And even beyond that, as a human being, to kind of creatively lead her life as a free individual. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. And it's interesting that that key concept of creativity runs through well, all parts of the description you gave us of her. So yeah, what, what an impressive person. I just have one question about that. I don't know if you're able to answer it, but I'll, I'll pose it anyway. You know, in the West, uh, in America in particular, I should say, because I think it is, it is in many ways a problem in America. And Kim clearly shared, well, in a sense, a kind of dynamic that's familiar to many um, American Buddhists, right? Because evangelical Christianity is so strong in America in a way that it's not in Europe. So it's a little bit different to what I might have experienced, for example. But often the the sort of the internal structures of growing up inside an evangelical framework means often that those folks who then go on to Buddhism will infuse Buddhism with this kind of search for something greater. And she used this word, you know, the small self and the great self. To what degree uh, for Kim was the great self still a self that was in the world, material, rather than something perhaps transcendent and more fully related to, to God? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I think that the for, for Kimiria, great self is uh, not God or any transcendental being, because great self is the kind of uh, the self that individual practitioners should aim at. So in other words, uh, one practice of Buddhism or one practice self-cultivation, not to be a God or the transcend a transcendental being, but as an individual who they are, right? So um, in Buddhist tradition, right? In Buddhist tradition, the Buddha was a human being who attained awakening. So in other words, being an attained being does not make the person in Buddhist tradition go beyond the human uh, uh, human position. Right? The, per the person is still human who lives their daily life, but the, the person's relation to oneself and to others and to external world changes. In this sense, the great self is still the self. So this is different from, for example, Christian God or a Hindu idea of Brahman, which is great self, actually, in, in, in English translation, right? Uh, universal self. So I don't think that the idiot had an idea about taking this great self as something beyond human, right? It is in human realm. But then the, the capacity of this human being is more open than the small self who has a closed concept of, of the self. Okay, that's clear. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously there's a massive difference there, isn't there? If, if mm -hmm. the opening self mm -hmm. is an opening, not a fully open, or a self that has an end somewhere where it's fully open, mm -hmm. it means it's always in the process of opening to a, a reality beyond the confines of the small self as dictated by society and history and culture in a given moment so we're running out of time uh here jin mm -hmm. and this is all very interesting and the thing is always nice to ask at the end is is where to next um you know obviously you you've got quite a diversity of interests here and you've got to make choices as, as you said at the beginning of our conversation today what are the projects on the horizon for you and where's well for your creative self where's the the next creative inspiration coming from in terms of the topic you'd like to look into and research more on? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so um, I think my current project is going to the direction of using this uh, uh, combination of a Buddhist idea of self-cultivation and transformation, and there it is a social political philosophy, combine them together and think about uh, the idea of violence and nonviolence which I've been thinking a lot, and then especially the violence, which is very real in our society and in our world, right? And then how to define violence. Derrida talked a lot about violence and then many of Western thinkers. But then how do we deal with that? And how do we practice nonviolence? And when I teach nonviolence, students often say that this is a great idea, but it's not practical. And I, I, I don't think it's a not practical, but it's not easy either. So I'd like to think about violence and nonviolence in the context of still the idea of exclusion, right? So the voices from the margin, being at the margin in my entire life, I, I want to think more about what it means being at the margin and what kind of marginality uh, we encounter and what does margin do or can do uh to to change society and there comes the idea of solidarity right so um solidarity of all the margins uh, to make changes and then um so these are kind of ideas that uh, kind of uh, i'm working with uh, drawing materials from both the buddhist tradition and the western especially postmodernism and, and deconstruction and and at the same time uh, more and more modern modern uh uh, Korean philosophy. Interesting. And I, I can't help but think that existing at the margins, though, may give you a bit more room to move in being creative and thinking about this greater self. Be, um, I'm not sure. Be, being at the margin really gave you an opportunity to think a lot about what is happening <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, look, uh, Jin, it's good to talk to you, and I appreciate you having shared your time with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great speaking with you. All the best, Jin. Uh, thanks again. And you've been listening to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, 
and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.